Well, thanks, Daniel. Thanks, worship team. I can't imagine three songs and three sets of lyrics that would better prepare our hearts and focus our hearts on the message um, this morning. And happy Fourth of July also uh, to all of you. Well, let me set the context and the setting for where we're going to be this morning. We're in Mark 14. We're going to look at the first 11 verses, 1 through 11. And it's helpful to just describe kind of where things are at now in the whole gospel story as it's playing out. We're going to see that it's two days before the Passover. That means two days before Jesus is arrested and then tried and sent to the cross to die for our sins. We're also going to see that, um, or should remember at least, that what Daniel taught on the last two times where Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, and particularly last weekend, how Daniel took us on this amazing uh, journey and message really into the heavenlies uh, and into the future with these grandiose scenes of heaven and hell and angels and the rapture and the thousand-year reign and all these things. And it's, as I was pondering that, the transition from chapter 13 to 14, here's what's really cool, um, how the Bible can take us in such an, an instant from the heavenlies right back down here to earth. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we, are, as we look at this section of Scripture. We're going to enter someone's dining room here on earth in a little town called Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. And so we're literally going to go from heaven back down to earth because the Bible is both a heavenly book and an earthly book. And our God is God of heaven and earth, right? And I think sometimes we can have a God, I mean, God is huge, but sometimes we can have a God that's so big, we don't think he actually cares about the little things that go on in our living room, or in our dining room, or in our lives. And sometimes we have a God who's so small that we think he can't actually solve those problems. So we've got to keep in proper perspective. I know this sounds like a child of the 60s, which I was, but God is as big as he is small, and he's as small as he is big. Right? Doesn't it sound like it came from the 60s? But that's true of our God. So we want to keep, tr keep track of that this morning. That we saw God in his hugeness last time. We're going to see him in a tiny little sliver of someone's life this time. And something amazing that goes, that goes on. So this town they're in, let me set some, tell you a little bit about that. Bethany was a town at the foot of the Mount of Olives where Jesus has just been. So he's come down from the mountain. And it was about a mile and a half to the east of Jerusalem. Just kind of on the way to Jerusalem. Significantly, and that plays into our, our message this morning, it is also where Lazarus lived. And if you remember, Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they're all going to be part of the scene that we're going to look at um, this morning. The home that we're going to be at where this takes place is the home of a leper uh, named Simon the leper. And for, there's a parallel account of this in both John chapter 12 and also in Matthew 26. And we're going to kind of put all three of them together to flush out everything that happens here, although we'll focus on the Mark passage. But we know from the parallel account in John 12 that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were all in this home on this night when this happened, and that Jesus has actually been here for a while. For John tells us that six days before the Passover, he came to this house of Simon the leper. So he had been staying with this leper for a little bit of a while. Now, Simon would have been a healed leper because in that culture, if you had leprosy, you were totally shunned. No one could even be around you. So this was a healed leper uh, in his home hosting this dinner uh, for Jesus. And the event is, is so important that when Matthew records it, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about it in similar ways. But it's in some, Sorry, Matthew, Mark, and John talk about it in similar ways. It's so important that it's in all three of those Gospels 
It's not found in the Gospel of Luke, although Luke in chapter 7 has another incident just like this one, but it's a different set of players. And it's at a home of Simon the Pharisee, and it's a different woman there than the one we're going to see um, this morning. So um, with that, let me just pray, and then we'll read it, and we'll go through it verse by verse. Father, we thank you for your living word. Lord, we thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, and I know as I've been studying this the past few weeks, you've used it to pierce my own heart deeply. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take your words out of these 11 verses of Scripture, not my words, Lord, and, and pierce our hearts deeply uh, with the love of Christ. Lord, may we respond with hearts that overflow with gratitude, as we, we will see this woman do this morning. Uh, may we leave here uh, being more your people than we were uh, when we entered this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me read it, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. So Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So, in verse 1, we see that we are two days before this most significant event on the Jewish calendar. History records, the historian Josephus records, that sometimes upwards of a million Jewish pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem for Passover. It was a huge event. It was the most significant day, really, in the entire Jewish calendar. People would come from all over to celebrate the shed blood of an innocent lamb that saved them from death when they fled captivity in Egypt. The religious leaders here we see are not doing anything to prepare their own hearts for this time. Rather than doing that, they're plotting to kill Jesus. And it kind of gives us a picture of religion. Right? Religion looks good on the outside. It's all prim and proper on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of death, which is what we see here. And we also see in verse 1 that they're, going to, they're seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And doing something by stealth just speaks of the evil nature of this, because evil is generally done in secret and in darkness, isn't it? Because it can't stand the light of day. So contrast that with Jesus and what he's doing in this scene. Jesus, who is the living truth, isn't hiding. He's not despondent. He's not depressed over what's about to happen. He's not rebellious over what's about to happen. This is what he came to do when he came from heaven to earth. And he is still out there amongst his people, his sheep, loving on them, 
living with them, sharing a meal with them. In verse 2, we see that the religious leaders are more focused on what the people will think because they don't want to do this, it says, during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And that just kind of tells us that they were more focused on what man thinks than what God thinks, more afraid of man than they were of God. Not a good place to be. And they didn't want to upset the people. In verse 3, we now see that Jesus is at this home of Simon um, in, in the town of Bethany, Simon the leper. And Simon, as I mentioned earlier, even though healed, would have been still quite an outcast because leprosy was a very disfiguring disease. It basically numbed all the nerves in the, in the ends of your body, and so you, you wouldn't know when to take it off a hot stove or that it just rubbed into a wall. And people with leprosy would, have, would be missing fingers, sometimes maybe even missing a hand or part of their arm. Their faces would often be grossly, grossly disfigured. So Simon would have still been an outcast, not someone a lot of people would have wanted to necessarily hang around. And the other thing about leprosy is it is, it is often used in Scripture to picture or as a depiction of sin. And think about that, how sin so disfigures us from what God intended us to be as he created us. And yet here is Jesus with Simon the leper. In fact, throughout the Gospels, you will find Jesus spending a whole lot of time with these same people, with lepers. And in that culture, as I said, lepers were shunned. They were social outcasts. Yet our Lord went out of his way to spend time with them. And as I was pondering that, I thought of a question for us. Since we're supposed to be like our master and become more Christ-like, are we like that? Do we seek out outcasts when we're at a gathering? Do we spend time with them when we're at church functions, like we're going to be this afternoon at this picnic? Do we seek out after those that no one else is talking with? Or do we seek out the in crowd? You see, what we see here is Jesus, as he's no respecter of persons, he's no respecter of cliques either. And he goes out of his way to break through those kinds of barriers. And so should we. We also see in verse 3 that tells us there that Jesus is reclining at table. And in that culture, that meant they were having a meal. They'd have these low-lying tables, and they'd literally lay on the floor with cushions behind them, and they'd go for hours um, eat, eating a meal together. So meals were a time of tremendous fellowship besides a time to enjoy food. And guess what John's account tells us about this meal? It tells us that Martha, who was the sister of Mary, Martha was the one who was actually preparing the meal. And remember, she's the one that in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus tells her that, you know, Martha, you're too busy. You need, to, you need to sit at my feet like your sister's doing. You're always running around cooking meals and doing things. And, and your sister, Mary, has the better part because she sits at my feet and listens to my teaching. And Martha was always so distracted running around trying to do something for the Lord that she missed that fellowship with him. And I don't know how to describe her, but the picture I have in my mind of Martha um, is kind of like an old world Martha Stewart. And, uh, you know, maybe she had uh, pottery barn furniture in this house and pottery barn dining table and, and dishes. Maybe she had a recipe out of Williams-Sonoma. And, you know, she was serving this meal for the Lord. So that's Martha who's there. And then also in verse 3, there's this woman who appears on the scene who John identifies for us as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And what happens next is the key to this entire section of scripture and we know this because of what jesus says down in verse 9 let me read verse 9 for you again jesus says and truly i say to you 
wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she, Mary, has done will be told in memory of her. So think about that. Wow. Of all the people in the Bible that Jesus ever interacted with, this is the only one that he says something like that about, that what she has done should be proclaimed wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the entire world. No one else gets something like that said about them in Scripture. So that tells me we need to very carefully examine and think through exactly what Mary does here and what, are the, what all the implications are of it. And that's what we're going to endeavor to do in our time together this morning. The first thing we see is that she does this voluntarily. Jesus didn't ask her to do it. He didn't tell her to do it. No one else asked her to do it. No one else told her to do it. She did it completely out of her own free will, completely out of her own accord. And that is how Jesus wants all of our gifts to him to be. Not under any sense of compulsion, but because we want to. That's how he wants all our service to be to him as well, all our obedience to him to be, because we want to. Second, we see that this was a very expensive gift which she gave him. We need to unpack why that is. First verse 3 tells us, it uses those words, it says it was very costly, it was a very costly ointment. Verse 5 tells us that it was worth more than 300 denarii. Now a denarii, we know at the time of Christ, was one day's wages, because in the parable of the vineyard workers, they each got one denarii, one day's wage. So if you figure a year's 365 days, you back out uh, 52 Sabbaths, and you back out time for uh, Jewish holidays, of which they had a lot of, this is more than a year's wage. This is a lot of money, is what this vial of nard is worth. We also see that it's being stored in an alabaster flask, uh, which Mary breaks open to pour all this substance over Jesus. Alabaster also was very expensive. It was a marble-like substance, and generally in archaeological digs from that part of the world, you only find alabaster in the rich neighborhoods, <laughs> okay? Because it, 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 was, it was a very expensive uh, type of stone to have. And the Greek word that's translated in verse 3 as very, co- very costly is, is an interesting word. It was the word baritumos, B-A-R-I-T-U-M-O-S. And it meant not only very costly, but also precious and rare. So both this ointment and the container that it's in were expensive and rare, and here they are being freely offered up, sacrificed, broken, shattered, and poured out on our Lord by this woman. Now, we need to ask ourselves, exactly what would a single woman in that culture be doing with such a thing in her possession in the first place? Well, here's what's so striking. Many scholars believe that this was most likely Mary's dowry, okay? That was the thing. A dowry was the thing in ancient cultures that a woman had to have in order to get married so that she and her husband would be financially secure. In that culture, actually, the, the uh, groom's side would throw the wedding party, not the bride's side, and the bride's side would bring in this thing called the dowry. So this rare and expensive alabaster flask of rare and expensive ointment was Mary's ticket to find a husband. And in that culture, finding a husband was absolutely essential to a woman, financially speaking, because there were no good-paying jobs, no illustrious careers available in that culture for women. It was either get a husband or live in poverty the rest of your life. 
So this flask full of ointment was not only precious monetarily to Mary, but it was everything to her. It represented her hope, her future, her security, even her love life. And yet, she just breaks this thing and pours it all over Jesus. You see, to Mary, Jesus was worth everything. He was more important to her than even her own future, more important to her than her own hopes, her own dreams, and her own plans. To Mary, Jesus was worth so much that she would gladly pour out her hopes and her plans and her dreams as an offering to him. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to truly give our hearts to Jesus and to truly surrender ourselves to him. And it tells us that to Mary, Jesus was of immense worth and that she was willing to sacrifice anything she had or held dear for the sake of Jesus. So as I was pondering this, the question came to my heart, would we be willing to give up and give away or forfeit all of that for Jesus? What are we willing to have broken and shattered so that we can make a gift to him like that alabaster flask was broken and shattered? It's a pretty challenging thought. So let's move on to verses 4 and 5. We see that some of the people there thought that Mary was nuts, and it says they spoke out against her. They were indignant, and they asked, why was this ointment wasted like that? And you know what? People may say that about us when we give our hearts and our lives to Jesus. People may say, why are you giving up all the so-called fun that you could have in the, in, the, in the party lifestyle to just follow Jesus? Of course, not really understanding that true joy actually comes from following him, not in all those other things. And also note that these critical, indignant people thought that the money that this gift represented could have been spent on something that to them was a more worthy cause than Jesus, and that is feeding the poor. Now, it's not that we are not to care for the poor. Scripture's full of that, and we certainly should. But the cause of Christ and of advancing his kingdom by seeing people come to him is far, far more important than any social issue could ever be. Because social issues don't save people. Only Jesus does. And if you give someone food, even until they're sick to their stomachs, but they don't know Jesus, they're still headed to judgment in a place called hell. That is why the primary mission of the church and of this church is and needs to be salvific, not social or political, no matter what side of the aisle it's from right or left. Now, verse 6, we see Jesus intervene to protect her and stop all this criticism of her. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. You know, when we take a stand for Jesus, we need to remember he will be there for us, and he will take a stand for us. And that's what we see here. And then he goes on to say that what she has done is this beautiful thing. Because you see, unlike the religious leaders who were so concerned about pleasing man. Mary here is far more concerned about pleasing Jesus. And with abandonment, she just breaks this expensive thing over Jesus' head and covers him with it. And so it must have been very sweet music to her ears as well, a beautiful thing to her ears to hear Jesus say that and say, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
Verse 7, uh, we see here that Jesus doesn't put down taking care of the poor, but what he is concerned here is a matter of priority and a matter of urgency because he's not going to be with them much longer. And so spending time with him and lavishing things on him and enjoying fellowship with him, like reclining at a table and, and worshiping him as she does, are of far greater importance, Jesus is saying, at this point in time, than feeding the poor. And then his next statement about having the poor with us always, this gets misunderstood all the time in Christendom and the world. This is not any type of dismissive statement about the problem of poverty, such that we should just get used to it and accept it. That's not what Jesus is saying. You see, if God's people at this time had actually been following all the commandments given to them in the Old Testament about taking care of the poor, there wouldn't be any poor. Okay? You had Old Testament commandments that said, for instance, about gleaning of the field, that if you had a field, you weren't to harvest the corners. You were to leave those for the poor people. We had commands in the Old Testament on debt forgiveness every seven years. You had commands that regulated, actually prohibited, charging interest to a brother. There were the Jubilee year laws when all property would, would revert back to the original owners so that no one person could amass huge amounts of property. If those laws had been followed, there wouldn't be any poor people. So what Jesus is saying here is not an endorsement of there always being poor people and just, just learn to live with it. It's an indictment of these people and of their disobedience for not following what God's commands were. Now, verse 8 starts with Jesus saying that this woman has done what she could. He says she has done what she could. And you know, that is really all Jesus wants from any of us, is to do what we can with what he has given us when it comes to serving him or advancing his kingdom. Look, not everybody here can be a full-time pastor like Daniel or a part-time pastor like Ben and Ben Kai and myself. Not everybody here can be a worship leader like we, the wonderful music we had, had up here this morning. But there is something that God has uniquely gifted each one of us to do, and then he's called us to use that gift in service to him. And so whatever it is, that's what we should do. We should do, as Jesus says here, what we can do. Now, Jesus also says here that what Mary has done was more than just the extravagant gift that we just talked about. He saw it, figuratively at least, and I'll explain why I say that, as an anointing for his burial. And the reason I say that's figurative is this. This was not the actual ointment that he was buried with. This would have soaked in. Perhaps he rubbed some of it off before he went to go to sleep that night. But it would have been gone two days later. There's no evidence in the scriptures that he had all this stuff all over him when he was tried or went to the cross. Not only that, but it wasn't enough stuff to bury somebody in. It wasn't even the right stuff, because in that culture, when someone died, they would wrap the body in myrrh and, and aloes and then put sheets around them uh, before they were buried. In fact, that's what happened to Jesus. John 19.39 tells us that Nicodemus... The Pharisee who'd been seeking after Jesus earlier, Nicodemus brought 75 pounds, the gospel says, of myrrh and aloe that were actually then used to wrap and embalm the Lord before he was buried. So this is not the ointment that he actually was buried in. But Mary, we know um, from other scriptures, was the one who was always sitting at the feet of Jesus, spending time with him listening to him, learning from him, while her sister Martha, as I talked about, was always busy 
running around preparing meals. So it is likely, very likely, that Mary had heard and understood what the disciples kept missing, and that is Jesus teaching that he came to die and that he was going to die soon. So she did this in acknowledgement of that truth. Jesus could see her heart, and that's what he's saying. That's why she anointed me for burial. She knows why I'm here, and she understands what I'm about to do. Not only that, and this is really kind of cool, too, because we, you know, when we pray for the sick, we anoint with oil, and there's a number of reasons, perhaps, in Scripture that we're, we're supposed to do that, but one of them is anointing someone with oil was a, an Old Testament way of setting someone apart as being very special before God before they would go on a very special mission or task for God. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. And so in a very real sense, that's what Mary was doing here, is she anoints Jesus as being set apart to fulfill the plan of God, formed before time to send a Savior, to die for the sins of mankind, so that anyone who would believe in him would be saved. So verse 9, we should now be able to see some of the reasons why Jesus makes that statement in this verse, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Because Mary recognized Jesus for who he truly was, the Savior who came to earth to die for the sins of man, the Savior of mankind. She recognized him as the Lamb of God that was going to take the place of all those thousands of Passover lambs that were about to be slaughtered because he was set apart to atone once and for all, fully and finally, for sin. Mary also submitted herself in this picture we've seen to Jesus as Lord and gave herself all her hopes, dreams, plans, etc., fully to Jesus. She gave all that she was, all that she had, and all that she hoped for. And so she is a model of how we are to receive Jesus wherever the gospel is told. That's why it's tied with this. The other thing that she's a model for is for what true worship is. You know what the most basic theological definition of worship is? It's very simple when you think of the worth in, in that word worship. Worship is the act of attributing worth to something else or someone else. And so as we think about that definition of, of, of worship and what Mary did here, she was attributing tremendous worth to her King and Lord and Savior Jesus by what she did. And she did this in, a, in an extravagant and fully committed way. In a sense, her actions in that little house in Bethany on that night so long ago are a living example of what Romans 12.1 calls us all to do which is in view of or because of the mercies of God to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That's what Mary did. And we are told also in Romans 12, 1 at the end of it, that that is the kind of worship that God views as holy and acceptable. So no wonder this is to be told wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Now, in verses 10 and 11, in contrast with Mary, we have Judas. And we know from other scriptures that Judas was the keeper of the money. And we know that he was so greedy, John tells us in John's account, that he had been stealing some of the money for himself. John's account also tells us that Judas was one of the ones, in fact, the one in John's account, who makes this complaint about the ointment, that it should have been sold to take care of the poor. And 
who knows, it's just speculation. Maybe Judas was looking for a way to get some extra money so he could kind of replace some of what he had taken. But rather than speculate about that, let's look at the contrast here between Mary and Jesus. Mary who does this, and Mary and Judas, excuse me, Mary who does this, and Judas who plotted with the religious leaders to kill Jesus. First we see in verse 11 that the religious leaders paid some money to Judas to betray our Lord. We know from Matthew's account the precise amount they paid him, 30 pieces of silver, which actually fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. And unlike in our culture, where the silver was taken out of our coins more than 50 years ago, and we have these copper nickel things that aren't worth the, the, the dollar amount that it says on them, silver coins back there, back then, I mean, today would be very valuable because they don't have them. But back in those days, everything was made out of silver and gold. There were a few bronze coins. And silver coins, you can't have a, a huge denomination on them because it's not as valuable as gold. You can't lug around these giant things. So, so silver coins were very common and actually not worth much back then. In fact, Exodus 21.32 tells us that this same amount, 30 pieces of silver, was the fine you had to pay if you accidentally killed someone else's slave. And slaves were everywhere in that culture. And sadly, we can see from that law, their, law, their lives were not worth much. So for Judas, Jesus was not worth any more to him than a common slave. Whereas for Mary, Jesus was worth everything she had. More than having a husband, more than being financially secure. So what was it about Mary? We have to ask that. What was it about Mary that enabled her to see the immense worth of Jesus? And what was it about Judas that caused him to see Jesus as worth so little? Well, the answer for Judas is pretty simple. So let's start with him. Judas, we know, was a lover of money. And, of course, then of what money could do for him, which made him also then a lover of self. Judas is a living example and what we see him do here is a living example of why the love of money, not money itself, the love of money is the root of all evil. For his desire for it led him to do the most evil thing imaginable, kill God in human flesh. For while Jesus, or excuse me, while Judas tried to serve, in a sense, both God and money, because he hung around Jesus for three years while he's doing all this, that never works. Because one will always win out over the other. And Judas was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said that very thing, that you can't serve God and mammon. But for Judas, money won over God. And it crowded out his love for Jesus. Not because money is a more powerful force than our God, but because God will not allow us to have divided loyalties. He is a jealous God. And he won't let us have divided allegiances to him. Now, most likely, here's something else going on in Judas's mind. Because remember, the disciples earlier had argued about who was going to be greatest in what they thought was going to be this political kingdom that Jesus was bringing to earth. And so Judas most likely was, had been thinking the same thing. He was looking for a political Messiah who would overthrow the yoke of Roman rule and who would make him and the other disciples highly placed officials in this new political kingdom. And perhaps, just perhaps, because he was the keeper of the money, maybe he kind of envisioned a position for himself as like the secretary of the treasury in this new kingdom that Jesus was bringing. 
And when Judas realized that, Je that Jesus was not going to be delivering this political kingdom for him, he lost any allegiance that he had to Jesus. When he didn't get what he wanted from Jesus, then Jesus was worth very little to him, and he was ready to sell Jesus out. Unlike Mary, Judas clung to his plans, to his hopes, to his dreams, to his future, and he wouldn't sacrifice them for the sake of Jesus. You see, there is a danger for all of us in having a Judas type of mentality. I mean, what if Jesus doesn't give us what we want? And do we just give up on him? What if Jesus doesn't give us or a loved one that healing that we're so desperately praying for? What if he doesn't relieve our suffering from something or the suffering of a loved one? What if he doesn't bring an end to our financial problems? What if he doesn't bring us a spouse? What if he doesn't get us a job? What if he doesn't restore our marriage? Are we then going to give up on him like Judas and sell him out? So how can we become more like Mary so that we would never do such a thing? Well, as mentioned earlier, we know that Mary spent a lot of time sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's why I thought it was so beautiful we sang that in our second song. And sitting at someone's feet was a phrase in that culture that meant a couple things. Number one, it meant submission. You're submitting to them at, at, at their feet. And she was clearly submitted to Jesus. But sitting at someone's feet was also a phrase used to describe how someone would learn, get an education in that culture. Paul tells us in Acts that he learned how to be a Pharisee by, guess what, sitting at the feet of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. So sitting at the feet pictures submission and also pictures learning. So think about what happened to Mary as she spent all that time sitting at the feet of Jesus. She would have learned that he had the words of eternal life. She would have learned that he, she, he had the power to forgive sins, that he was the resurrection and the life. In fact, he spoke those words to her sister Martha when Lazarus had apparently died. She would have learned that he was the good shepherd who would lay down his life for her. And she would have learned that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. So as Mary grew in her understanding of Jesus and in her relationship with him, you know what Jesus became to her? Jesus became her go-to person, which is what he should do or should be for all of us, for everything in life. You know, she, had, she would go to him with her hurts, her fears, her failures, her loneliness, along with her joys, her successes, and her victories. And so you see, by submitting to Jesus and by spending time with him, listening to him and learning from him, Mary fell deeply, deeply in love with Jesus. Not as she would have done with an ordinary man, maybe that husband she was hoping for, but with him as her God, as her King, as her Lord and Savior. And that made him of immense value to her. So much so that as we see in this account, she could publicly, before everyone in that house that night, perform this incredible, extravagant act of love and worship. You know what John's account of this event tells us? It says that the religious leaders were also plotting to kill Mary's brother, Lazarus. Do you know what this means, that she would do this publicly? This means she, it was an act that could have endangered her own brother's life as well as hers because she was his sister. 
And yet that didn't stop her. After all, how could it possibly stop her? For she loved him so much. And you see, we will become just like Mary when we spend time with Jesus, talking with him in prayer, listening to him in the words of Scripture, and being taught about him and his ways. There is no substitute for sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, there is a life-sized, chiseled, granite statue of Jesus made by a Danish sculptor by the name of Thors Walden. There's a Scandinavian name if you ever want it, right? Thors Walden. And this statue is made in such a way that you can't see the face or the eyes of Jesus unless you're sitting at the feet of the statue. If you just walk up to it and stand and look at it, you can't see his face and his eyes. You've got to sit at the base of that statue and look up to see his face. And so you see, as Mary discovered, and as this statue depicts, if we want to truly see Jesus in all of his glory and majesty and grandeur and all of the love that he has for us, if we want to fall madly in love with him as Mary did, we've got to sit at his feet. Now there's one more thing to share from this amazing event in this house in Bethany, and it is what that ointment flowing all over Jesus' body that night also pictures. It pictures his love poured out on us. And in that love, his blood poured out on us, which we're going to remember in a few minutes as we take communion. You see, even more amazing than Mary's extravagant love for Jesus is his extravagant love for us. That he who knew no sin would become sin for us and endure God's righteous wrath at sin on our behalf so that we would never have to. That he who had done no wrong would suffer and die for all the wrongs we have ever done or ever will do so that we could spend eternity in heaven with him. Just like Mary's ointment was an expensive gift, this was as well, for it cost Jesus his life. And just like Mary freely and willingly and lovingly poured out this ointment all over Jesus. Jesus has freely and willingly and lovingly poured out his love for us. We just have to sit there as he did that night and receive it and accept it and let it be poured all over us. David said in the 23rd Psalm that God anoints our heads with oil and makes our cup overflow. Romans 5.5 says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's present with us this morning, who has been given to us. And Ephesians 1.8 says that God, through Jesus, has lavished, just like Mary did, lavished, poured out His grace upon us. And you know what else? That ointment that Mary poured out on Jesus that night was a sweet-smelling perfume. It could turn the stinkiest, smelliest person into a sweet-smelling person as that ointment covered their body and soaked into their pores. And the love of Jesus will do the same thing for us. It will not only save us, but it will transform us from stinky, smelly sinners into sweet and glorious saints forever and ever. Amen? Now, as we close, consider this. The love of Christ is something that is best understood 
as you receive it, as you let it flow over you, not as you hear it in a sermon or a talk like we've had this morning. Charles Spurgeon, one of my great heroes of the faith, said that in Christ, speaking of this verse, in Christ, God has perfumed us with his love. What a beautiful statement. God has perfumed us with his love. And so if there's anyone here who has never received that perfume in their hearts, now is the time to do so. Let it flow over you. Let it save you from your sins as you freely receive it and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And let it transform you into a sweet-smelling person. But you know what? In a room this size, in a church that's been together this long, probably most of you have already received that love for salvation. But you may be sitting here this morning thinking in a sense that it's, that sweet smell has kind of been wearing off a bit. You've been kind of a, I know I have, a stinky, smelly person this last week. Maybe to your wife and husband, maybe to your kids, maybe to someone that means a lot to you. But you know what? God will give you more of it. He's got an inexhaustible supply of this sweet perfume. His love is not like Mary's ointment that's contained in a little jar. Once you break it, it's gone. His love never ends. So this morning, put yourself under God's love. Let it flow over you. Leave here washed and cleansed and refreshed in his love. Now look, Mary made a very, very bold public demonstration that she had received that love and that she wanted to give some of it back to Jesus in that night in the room. And I know it sounds crazy, but what I'm going to ask us all to consider doing this morning is nowhere near as bold as what Mary did. But it is this. If you want to receive that love for the very first time or for the tenth or a hundredth time because you've already received it for salvation, but you know you've gotten a little dirty, a little smelly, or maybe you just want to make a public statement like Mary did, that you love Jesus in that extravagant way that she showed, and you want, like she did, to proclaim his immense worth to you, what I'm going to ask us to do as the band plays softly and before communion is just come up here to the front, kneel at the front, or if you want to stay where you are, kneel in the aisles, kneel in front of you, and just pray. Ask God, if, you're, if you've never received this love, to just confess your sins to him and say, Jesus, I, I want the forgiveness you have to offer. I give myself to you like Mary did as my Lord, my Savior, my King, and he will save you. But if you've already been saved and you're sensing you're a little dirty and smelly and want to get cleaned up, just sit there and ask, Lord, wash my feet like Jesus said he had to do to the disciples. Let me leave here cleansed and refreshed. So let's all do that now, if you would, and then I'll close this in a time of prayer.